Let's pray together. Lord God, we adore you. We adore you for your power and your majesty clearly displayed in the things that you have made. We worship you for your wisdom. We worship you for the love that you have shown us in particular through your son Jesus who willingly shed his blood that sinners like us might be redeemed. We thank you for your compassion, your pity, your tenderness towards us. And Lord, we thank you for your word that helps us know you and understand what pleases you. And we thank you for your spirit that allows us to walk in accordance with what you have taught us in your word. And God, I pray that as we look at this passage in 1 Peter this morning, that um, our hearts would be ever shaped more into the image of your son, Jesus. That we would love you more and trust you more and be more wholeheartedly committed to you and your way. And Lord, I pray too, like that passage uh, from Colossians chapter 3 just told us, that we would be a church full of forgiving people, that we would forgive like you have forgiven us. God, I just ask that our church would reflect what the scriptures teach us about how the church should be. Um, And we look to you to do that work. We understand it's not in our own power. And so, Father, uh, minister to us by your spirit this morning as we worship through the proclamation of your word. In Christ's name, amen. So we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. We're making our way through uh, the book of 1 Peter. Over the last couple of weeks in particular, we have been looking closely at God's um, teaching around proper authority structures. How Christians should behave in light of these different authority structures. And last week, I told you that even if you don't fall into any of these particular authority structures, you know, we talked about emperors and governors and kings and slave owners and husbands and wives. Um, Even if you don't necessarily fall into any of those categories, there's still application for you to draw from these different teachings. But in our verses that we're going to look at today, Peter is going to shift his focus And he's really going to address some teaching that is directly applicable for all of us. These are teachings that are intentional for everyone. So if you've been waiting over the last couple of weeks, kind of twiddling your thumb, being like, oh man, when's he going to get around to me? Now is the time, okay? This Sunday is for you. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Peter writes, finally, all of you, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Well, I want to actually begin with a quote from an author named Sinclair Ferguson in a great book he's written called The Holy Spirit. And I'm going to put it up on the screen because he can be a um, a little bit wordy, but it's a good quote. He says, The believer who is baptized into Christ is baptized into his resurrection as well as into his death, into newness of life as well as into his death to sin. 
In putting off the ways of the old man, the ways of the new man are put on, and life in the Spirit begins. The whole of the Christian life, then, with its deep roots in the love of the Father and its foundation in the grace of Christ, is characterized by the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Heaven is a world of love. Already, the Spirit enables believers to experience an overflow from that world. Now, what Peter is describing for us here in verses 8 and 9 is a foretaste of the divine life that we anticipate entering into after the resurrection. But Peter doesn't tell us here that we have to wait until heaven for that reality to be part of our lives in Christ. He tells us to practice this spirit-filled kind of life now. And man, I want to just tell you uh, what a frustrating week this was in preparing for this sermon. And the reason is because uh, in in preparing to communicate this stuff, there are times where I'm just like, I I don't know how to communicate this. I don't know the right, the right words or the right outline or the right illustrations. Like There is this passion in my soul that this text draws out. How do I then explain it to our church? How do I pass from my heart and my mind, not merely information about what these words mean, but also the deep importance, the urgency with which we must actually live these things out. What Peter is describing is what the Christian life really can and really must look like in our lives. When the Bible says stuff like this, it really means it. It's not describing to us some ideal that is unachievable. This is giving us a picture of what sincere Christian faith, what true conversion, what an actual redeemed heart will look like in practice. What does it look like for us as Christians to live a life that honors God? Well, here Peter describes that life for us. He begins in verse 8 with this address, finally, all of you, all of you, Peter does not limit the application of these verses to elders and preachers and pastors. He doesn't limit the application of these verses to like sincere Christians or mature Christians. It's not optional for those who want it. Without exception, Peter says, this is what it looks like for us to walk the way of Jesus and live Christian relationship with one another through the Holy Spirit. And if you think you're exempt from putting these things into practice, then I just want to warn you, I would say that you're not actually a Christian. If you look at these commands here in these verses and you think, yeah, 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 like, okay, that's kind of the way of Jesus, but like, it's not really for me, but I'm still, no, you're not a Christian, in fact. To live like this is what it means to follow Jesus. To live like this is what it means to love God. To live like this is what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to belong to the body of Christ. So, once again, I want you to feel the heavy burden of obedience. 
The first statement that Peter gives us is that as Christians, we are to have unity of mind. Uh, When I initially came across that little phrase, unity of mind, I immediately thought of Philippians chapter 2. So will you turn there in your Bible with me? Philippians chapter 2. And we'll read verses 1 through 8 together. The sound of Bible pages turning is just music to my ears. I love it. (laughs) Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. I'm just going to read it. It says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So hang there for one second, because you can see there in verse 2 the connection to what we're looking at in 1 Peter chapter 3. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. And then again in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So when Peter says that we should have unity of mind, he's telling us ultimately that we together as the body of Christ should share in the mind of Jesus. What does that mind look like? Well, Philippians 2 tells us it's full of humility, sacrifice, love, other-centeredness. All of that was modeled to us by Jesus. This is why I say the way of Jesus must actually look like these things because he went before us and he practiced these things. So you can turn back to 1 Peter chapter 3. A little digging into this idea of unity of mind. Look, I'm sorry for this, but I I have to touch on some Greek things today because it will help sort of uh, give some further definition to these words, but a little digging into this word here in Greek reveals that the idea of unity of mind can communicate the idea of harmony. Harmony is a good word. Some translations even use that word here. Peter's not telling us that we must agree on everything. Peter's not saying here that every Christian, when they gather together in church, should have absolutely the same theological beliefs. We should not all have the exact same ideas, but rather because we've been united with Christ, it is possible for us to have harmony with one another. You know, I don't think that something like absolute uniformity among a group of people is possible even for the creepiest of cults because people are just so widely different. I mean, if there's a hundred people in this room, We are all going to be very different from one another. It's inevitable. And furthermore, even if we could achieve something like that, 
some kind of creepy absolute uniformity, there's a sense in which that uniformity would actually diminish the beauty of the body of Christ as it is described to us in Scripture. Because God has made different parts for different purposes, and that's all to the praise of his glory. But we are, in spite of our differences, to actually have unity of mind. And that unity is a harmony that works together in spite of our differences. You know, in music, harmony refers to the combination of simultaneously sounded musical notes that give a pleasing effect. So the concept refers to differences that work together in a wholeness that pleases God. It's the difference between one instrument punching out one note and an orchestra of instruments producing a beautiful symphony of sound. My kids are all learning to play piano, and uh, when they first began, I'll just confess to you, it was like torture. Maybe this is the first they've heard me say that. But, you know, learning to play piano, just pounding one note at a time repetitively is monotonous and painful to listen to. That would be a sense of uniformity. But over time, this beautiful thing has begun to occur where my children, as they increase in their ability to play piano, sometimes now they'll, they'll pull up these really complex YouTube uh, songs and they'll sit down sometimes two or three of them together at different places on the piano and they will play different notes in harmony and it's a beautiful sound. This is the unity of mind, the harmony of the church that Peter has in mind here. Though vastly different from one another, Because we share the mind of Christ, we are unified. And what is it that unites us ultimately? Well, it's not merely the mind of Christ, although that's true. It's also our shared love for Jesus. He is our one pure and holy passion. The power of the indwelling spirit unites us to overcome our differences. A passion for the word of God which we all claim to submit to as the way in which we have chosen to live our lives. Our shared commitment to actually following in the footsteps of Jesus. Our common purpose to seek the glory of Christ. And so unity of mind in the body of Christ is not some kind of optional way of doing church, my friends. It is the natural result of all of us committed to the glory of Jesus Christ above the glory of each of us individually. Christ came to teach us this harmony so that we wouldn't each be playing our own song in a desire to be heard above everyone else, but so that we would together play his song. And a church where there's truly unity of mind and harmony of the Spirit, that's a wonderful, powerful thing. Jesus described it really as an unstoppable kind of force that even the gates of hell could not prevail against it. And so I would ask you at this point to consider, are you out of harmony with anyone in this room right now? Are you out of harmony with any of your brothers and sisters sitting sitting here this morning? Are you out of harmony with your husband or your wife? 
And if so, if you're out of harmony with anyone in this room, then to honor Jesus, I would tell you that you shouldn't waste any time in entering back into the unity of mind that Scripture commands for those who love Jesus. Next, Peter tells us that we must have sympathy. Um, Like many of our English words, this is a word that comes to us directly from the Greek. Our English word sympathy is modeled after the Greek word here. And uh, what this word literally means is to suffer the same thing. So it's a compound word in Greek, and it means to suffer the same thing. Now, it is true that in life, the suffering that we experience is each unique, okay? Whatever suffering you've been through, I've not, purposed, or I've not personally walked through the same kind of suffering that you have been through. But there is a burden of suffering that we all experience quite uniformly. And do you know what that suffering is? It's the suffering of sin. We are all sinners. We are all stricken by the tragedy of sin. And that's an awful malady to be stricken with, isn't it? And so shouldn't that give us pity for one another? There's one Bible translation that actually in, this, in these verses in 1 Peter uses the word pity. The fact that we are all sinners should allow us to be gentle and kind towards one another for our various faults and failures because none of us is without sin. This is actually the imagery that comes to us in John chapter 8. Maybe you know this story about the woman caught in adultery. Let me remind you, right? There's a woman, she's caught in adultery. The religious leaders drag her before Jesus and they say to Jesus, well, the law tells us that we should stone a woman for this kind of sin. And that actually was the appropriate application of the Jewish law. But what Jesus does in his response to this angry crowd of religious leaders is he actually appeals to their sympathy. Not because these religious leaders were guilty of the same sin of adultery, but because they too understood the burden of sin. And so Jesus says to the angry crowd, any of you who's without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Now, we tend to not think of uh, the Pharisees and the scribes as being very sympathetic people, but actually, Jesus manages to move these men to pity. It's not necessarily pity for the woman, but in the way that Jesus sets this up, these men, at least for a moment, are moved to sympathize with her because they understand their own problem, their own sin. These men are moved from being the adversaries of this woman to at least for a moment realizing where should they be. They should be next to this woman. Maybe not condemned for the sin of adultery, but condemned and guilty to die for whatever sin they were guilty of. And so among the body of Christ, we are to be sympathetic towards one another. We don't move away from one another in condemnation and pride, but rather we move towards one another in sympathy, in pity, in compassion. My sin issues may not be your sin issues, but you are not without sin. 
which should make you patient with me. Since you know what a terrible thing it is to be plagued by the thorn of sin, don't you? We are all sinners in need of grace. And so rather than be harsh or condemning with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we should offer to them help in our weakness. We should seek to point one another to the Savior that all of us need as our daily provision. We understand the truth that Martin Luther summarized as simul justice et peccator. At the same time, righteous in Christ and sinner. Righteous because of the work that Jesus has done and yet still a sinner because of the flesh. And in this nature of both redeemed and broken humans, we understand the need of compassion towards one another. That we must be sympathetic. So let me ask you again, have you failed? at this point, to be sympathetic towards anyone in this room? Have you judged them for the sins that they have that are particular to them while you, before God, have excused yourself for your own sins? Have you failed to extend to anyone else in this room the same grace that you so desperately need day by day? Our third instruction is to have brotherly love. Brotherly love is simply mutual affection. It points us here to our family of believers that we belong to. Our covenant fellowship that is bound together by blood, not the blood of genetics, but the blood of the cross that flows to all of us equally from Jesus. And there's no stronger blood of fellowship than this. The fellowship that unites the family of Christ by the adoption of the Father through the atoning work of Christ the Son. And tragically, the idea of family is not how most people would view their church. I think that that's sad. Uh, Most people tend to view their church as some kind of optional activity that they participate in, that they no longer participate in when it's not convenient or profitable or, you know, once something happens that makes them upset and they don't like it anymore. Many people tragically fail to understand the deep bond that unites believers together in the body of Christ. What Jesus envisioned for his church was a people with hearts that are literally bound up in with one another in love, so that scripture says, when one suffers, all suffer, and when one rejoices, all rejoice together. We are not actually different autonomous individual units that just come together to sing songs together and listen to a sermon on Sunday. We are one unit made up of many parts So that the well-being of us as individuals is actually bound up together in the well-being of everyone else in this room as the body of Christ. Now the ESV translation here uses brotherly love. I think that's a great um, translation. It does wonderfully draw out this idea of family in the brotherly aspect. Um, But this is another Greek word here that's actually worth uh, thinking through. The word is Philadelphia. Maybe you're familiar with uh, that word from the city 
the city of brotherly love. But that first syllable there, philo, is actually the Greek word for love. Greek has several different words for love, which I wish English actually did, because to say I love tacos and I love my wife is very confusing. (laughs) Two categorically different things. This word philo specifically refers to an aspect of love between friends. Now, connected to brothers, we get that sense of family. But let's not miss this aspect of love between friends that's included here. In John chapter 15, verse 15, Jesus actually says to his disciples, No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends. And so the fellowship of the church is like a family, that's true, but it's also like a group of friends. And the beauty of friendship is that it's mutually satisfying. There's an itch that is scratched by friendship that can't necessarily be scratched in any other relational way. Friendship is generally centered around a shared affinity for something, a shared love, which in this room we all share a love for Jesus Christ. Friendship is usually a relationship where equality is present regardless of status. Rich or poor, friends don't count those things as obstacles to their friendship. And friendship is a precious thing, especially the friendship that grows up around the foot of the cross when believers share a common love for Jesus Christ. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, I think I've got a slide for this as well. He said, friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly to me, it is the chief happiness of life. If I had to pick one piece of advice to a young man about a place to live, I think I should say, sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near your friends. That's great advice, actually. We tend to pick the places where we want to live based on advancing career, or better weather, or geography, or all kinds of different things that are not nearly as meaningful as brotherly love, the affection of friendship. I rejoice sometimes when I hear people say things like, yeah, we've thought about moving, but we're just connected to a church that's so good, we don't want to give it up. I hear people say that from time to time, and that moves my soul. And I hope you have friends here at Maricopa Springs. I hope you have people here that you can experience the joy of brotherly love in relationship with. But I want to remind you that you're not here for yourself. You're here for others. And so you might be asking yourself this morning, well, no, I don't really have any friends here. And I would tell you that actually you should be asking the question, who around me might be in need of a friend that I might be able to meet that need? Because it's not about you. God has brought you here to serve. He's brought you here to love. He's brought you here to sacrifice and to give. And so right now in this room, are present people who probably could use a friend just like you. 
Would you be willing to obey these verses of Scripture and offer yourself as a friend? Would you engage in the brotherly love of Christ to extend a hand of friendship to someone else in this room? Not for your sake, although I think in the end you'll find that you benefit richly, but ultimately for their sake. Now, developing a friendship requires a lot of time and energy and investment. I have found that the older I get, the harder it is to actually make friends. I think I've told the story before of my daughter, Karis, playing on a playground when she was like four years old. And uh, when we leave, we get in the car and she's telling me all about her new friend and what a wonderful friend she is and some random girl that she just met. And I was like, that's great, Karis. What was your friend's name? She's like, I don't know. (laughs) The older you get, the harder it is to make friends, isn't it? But it's, you don't have to go into the process with all of the weight of friendship in your mind. What would it look like for you to ask somebody to come over for a cup of coffee or meet up with you for lunch? It can start small with something like that. Or maybe you just ask them, how can I pray for you? And as you begin to sincerely pray for them, your heart begins to feel affection for them that God can use. You can simply engage in small ways to begin with and just see where it leads. But Peter's point here is that brotherly love in the family of Jesus Christ makes us both family and friends, all connected by this shared love that we have for Jesus. Next, we're told that we're to have a tender heart. Tender-heartedness is one of my all-time favorite illustrations. Um, Sometimes it makes me think of, you know, a meat mallet tenderizing a steak And sometimes that can be how it feels. But this is one of my all-time favorite images. The reason why I fell in love with my wife was because of her tender-heartedness. It was God's gracious antidote to me at a time in my life where hard-heartedness was destroying me. There was some deep relational pain in my college years that led me to do what many people do, which is withdraw into a calloused heart to seek shelter where I wouldn't have to feel the wounds of relational pain anymore. And at that point in my life, I actually got so broken that I began to believe that to be vulnerable with your heart was an ugly weakness. I thought that the vulnerability of love was foolish and really kind of dangerous. It was only actually for people who were too weak to be alone, right? A strong person can be all by themselves and be fine. It's those weak people who are willing to give themselves over to those relational connections of love. But do you see it's actually the opposite? The strong-hearted person gives their heart in relationship The temptation is always for us to hide our hearts from wounds. Because what's more painful than a wounded heart? Nothing, I would say. And the call placed upon us by Jesus is to keep giving our hearts. To keep enduring the bruises. To keep being vulnerable. To keep risking the wounds of love like Jesus himself risked the wounds of love. 
And Jesus was able to do this not because you're good at loving him back. He was able to risk the wound of love for you even though you have wounded him deeply because he was secure in the love that the Father had for him. He was able to keep giving himself in tender-hearted love because he knew that the Father would hold him in his love. And so we're called to love like he loved, secured, secure in the love that we know that the Father has for us so that we are generous to give ourselves in love to others. And seriously, what is the alternative? What is the alternative to risking your heart in love? Well, the alternative is basically death. C.S. Lewis has another phenomenal quote at this point. Let me put it up on the screen. It's one of my favorites. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or the coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. This is why we're commanded to have a tender heart. Because tenderness, tenderheartedness is the way of Jesus. It's the way of love. Yes, it's a dangerous, potentially painful, risky way. To love someone in this broken world will certainly lead you to tragedy and to pain. If you don't already know that experientially, then you will someday soon, I promise you. But the tragedy of selfishness is infinitely greater. Now, once again, I want to mention the Greek here because the word that we translate heart is this word that actually refers to the intestines of the sacrificial animal at some places in Scripture. Do you understand? There is a connection between the heart of the Christian and the sacrifice of love. The word translated heart has to do with the internal organs of the animal that is sacrificed. And so love is by definition sacrificial. To give your heart, to be tender-hearted is an act of love towards other that is going to be costly in nature. And you need to ask yourself if you are not experiencing any love or any cost in giving your love, is it really love? The same word that Peter uses, this tender-hearted word in Greek, it's found in the parable of Jesus in a couple places, but one place in particular where it's found is the parable of the prodigal son. You know that story, hopefully. In that parable, it's used to describe the feelings of the father towards his son 
as he sees his rebellious son come stumbling back home at the end of his long time away. That son who spurned his father, rejected his father, insulted him, pierced the father's heart with his callous behavior. Jesus tells us that son was received by the father with a tender-hearted, sacrificial love. And again, friends, if your love for others in this room doesn't sometimes cost you something, then it's probably not love. It's convenience. It's shallow. To actually love people, to actually love people like me is going to cost you something dear. You risk the possibility of pain. If you give yourself in vulnerability to others, it will lead to hardship. But the only alternative to that is isolation. And so I would ask you one other question, which is simply, have you stopped risking your heart? Have you closed it off to other people? Have you given up the possibility of pain and in so doing then also given up the possibility of love? Finally, our last phrase in verse 8, we're told to have a humble mind. There's so much I could say on this topic. I'm probably already long. I don't have my phone up here, so I don't know what time it is. But let me just remind you of what we read earlier from Philippians 2. We should have the mind of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Now this Jesus, who is the model of humility for us, who is he? Don't forget he is God himself. Almighty, omnipotent, the most exalted being, the greatest, the all-wise, with all authority and beauty and wisdom. And what did this God in Christ choose to do? He chose to humble himself, to make himself low. Now, I think we have a tendency in our culture to think that um, knowing things makes us intelligent and praiseworthy. Uh, this phrase that has worked its way into our culture all over the place is, what do the experts say? But the Bible te uh, teaches us that what is praiseworthy is not knowledge. What is praiseworthy is obedience. This is why Jesus was exalted because of his obedience to the Father. And that's precisely what humility is. Do you, do you understand this? There is no greater act of humility than to do what somebody else commands you to do. To be humble is to bow down before God, to abase yourself before him, to give yourself up to him. To subject your mind and your heart and your will to his will. To know nothing except Christ crucified. To seek nothing except to be a servant of the Most High God. And if Christ our King chose humility on the cross, then what option do we have except to follow him there? So there's no room for pride in the body of Christ because to be a follower of Jesus is to be his slave. 
and to joyfully obey everything that he has taught us, boasting only in Jesus. Now, in practice, we find this obedience described for us in verse 9, and I promise I won't be too much longer. Verse 9 says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Friends, the humble way of Jesus is a contrary way. The natural, the normal way of man is to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But the natural way of Jesus, the normal way of Jesus is contrary to that. When we suffer evil or wrong from other people, the way of Jesus is to bless them. While others selfishly would guard their hearts, we generously give our hearts to others. While the world would seek to gather up enemies for hatred, the Christian would seek to gather up friends for affection. While others would divide over petty differences, we as believers unite around Christ. While others would seek their own pleasure, we would seek only the pleasure of Jesus. While the world in its natural way would scrape and claw to hold on to its rights, we instead would give our lives over to scrapes and bruises to serve. And while others would seek to ascend to greatness, for the Christian, we would seek only to ascend the cross of Christ and be crucified with him. And why would we endure such abasement? Why would we endure such suffering and hardship and lowliness? Well, Peter tells us because we are called to this so that we might receive a blessing. See, at the end of the path of selfishness where you seek only your own desires, do you know what is to be found there? Actually, exactly what you want. Just you and you alone and nothing else but you with your thoughts about you. And what a terrible thing that will be. And alternatively, at the end of this path where we give everything up to follow Jesus, the reward is blessing. Because at the end of that path is everything that we want. Christ and his glory. God and his love for us. Jesus and his praise. James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What an amazing thing that a silly, inconsequential creature like you and like me will receive from the Lord of the universe a crown of life, a crown of glory because of our obedience to follow Jesus. The reward we receive is his love, his adoption into his everlasting family. And I don't know about you, but that, that price, the price of sacrifice, seems like a small thing to pay in comparison to the reward of God's love.